Hello, and welcome to the Glossy Podcast. I'm senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and our guest today is Cass D'Amico. Cass is a content creator and stylist who, in 2019, launched a jewelry brand called Arium Collective that has swiftly become quite popular among celebrities. Uh, you may have seen it worn by the likes of Dua Lipa, Kylie Jenner, Haley Bieber. I'm really excited to ask Cass a bit more about the origin of the brand and also how her work as a content creator intersects with her work as a brand founder. And we'll talk about all the other business stuff about how you grow a brand and all those kinds of things too. Cass, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have this chat. Yeah, there's a lot I want to ask you about, but just to start, I I did a super quick intro, but I'd love to hear a little more detail. Tell me about how you got into fashion. You you were a stylist first and then the brand came a couple of years later, correct? So I actually started off my career as an assistant buyer. Um, okay. I So I was working in corporate fashion for a department store and I absolutely love that job. That was like my dream was to become a buyer. And then I was doing a lot of product development. And then I kind of realized I wanted to launch my own brand. So I strategically decided to be launch my personal brand first. So I quit my job in 2017 to kind of kick off my social media personal brand. And then in 2019 is when I launched my jewelry brand, Orium Collective. Got it. So there was a there was a two year gap between quitting your kind of corporate job and then starting the brand. What what were you doing in that time? And was Arium Collective in your mind from the beginning, or did you have just sort of a general sense of wanting to start a brand? Like, how specific was your vision of the brand when you first quit in 2017? So in 2017, I just knew I wanted to eventually create something in the fashion world. I wasn't sure exactly what it was going to be. I kind of was hesitating a little bit. I felt like at the time I thought that I needed to have like a million followers on Instagram to be able to launch a successful brand. And then eventually I kind of realized that wasn't the case. I knew that I think I had around 150,000 followers at the time. And I understood that they were all following me for style and fashion and that whatever brand I ended up creating, they would be their taste would align with my taste. So Orium was actually something that was not that I was like always dreaming of creating. But now that it's here, I think it's very much like representative of me and my taste and my style and like my full lifestyle. But it wasn't always in the back of my mind, like that exact brand. When did you decide on jewelry as opposed to, did you toy with, you know, doing bags or doing accessories or something else? Or was jewelry kind of your the thing you landed on early on? So I, so basically how Orium was started is I, I was around 27 at the time and I decided that I wanted to really redo my wardrobe and redo my personal style. Like just have, give myself a full makeover. I wanted to be like more sophisticated, more classy and have like just a more mature, like sophisticated wardrobe. So I started wearing more neutrals and like just capsule, like simpler things. But then I was like, okay, I kind of look boring. <laughs> so I feel <laughs> like that's kind of where accessories really come to play. And Orium was just kind of born from me wanting to create this jewelry brand that was like the coolest pieces of your outfit and like made your outfit. And you can throw on like a black t-shirt, jeans, but you had 
these pieces on that just interest like instantly made you look more interesting and your style and outfit look way more interesting. So that's kind of how the brand was born, just to kind of like elevate your personal style through accessories. Got it. Yeah. And so can you tell me a little bit about the product then? So you, you settled on jewelry. Um, you know, you start, you had your personal brand already. You had an audience. Um, what was the product development process like? So we actually went through the product development process very quickly. Like looking back on it, we came up with the brand and then developed the products within a four month time period, which is extremely fast. And at the very beginning, we were very like specific about what the brand was. At the time, I felt like this whole like huge oversized like gold statement chains were having a moment. So we just kind of like dove into that as like a specific thing that we came out with. We came out with eight chains, some necklaces, some bracelets, and like just dove right in as that specific category of our brand. And I think that was a great way to start because for the first year of our business, I think as that trend started to really rise, everyone thought of like, oh, I really want like a really nice gold chain. And they thought of Orium. So I think we got that like brand association for the category for the trend or not even the trend because it is like a very classic piece, but for what the like of the moment piece was of that time. And that's kind of how we saw so much success like right away. Yeah, for sure. And and I was looking back before this podcast, I was looking back at previous times we've written about uh, the brand on Glossy, and there was a quote from you about seeing kind of a gap in the market for a luxury kind of product at a, a lower price point um, in jewelry. Uh, can you can you tell me more about that? What were your observations of the jewelry market? And how did you land on, you know, price point and where you want to situate the brand in between, you know, something really ultra luxury above you guys. And then just like, you know, costume jewelry below you or something. Where, where did you settle on where to place Arium in that kind of spectrum? So I feel like our brand kind of has this more luxury feel for multiple different reasons. Like one in terms of how we shoot our campaigns, like it's very luxurious and like life, it's very lifestyle as well. And obviously we try to make everything have this more like high-end fashion feel. But then also when it comes to quality of what our pieces are actually physically made out of, I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, YSL jewelry and Bottega Veneta jewelry, it's actually made out of worse quality than what our jewelry is made out of. So I wanted to make pieces that were, you know, gold vermeil had our, all of our pieces are plated in 24 karat gold. So they have this like very rich, deep gold color. So when you see them in person, they instantly like pop against most brands. And we just wanted our pieces to be like better quality, but have this like high fashion, like designer feel. So that was just kind of naturally where the brand sat based on what it costs to produce the products without, with having like a normal healthy markup without like going out of business and without like ripping people off. So it was very much like a very like natural way of doing things. Like we didn't necessarily like work from the price point and then work backwards. We worked from like what the quality that we wanted and then worked from there. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I think that's the key to a lot of brand building is, 
you know, lowering the price is a, is a good selling point in a lot of ways, but also you need to still have good margins and all that. Um, has the has the jewelry market changed much since the brand started? I know it's only a couple couple of years old, but do you feel like the the circumstances have changed? Have you adjusted anything about the brand to fit um, you know any changes in the market? So we've definitely evolved as a brand a lot. Obviously, as we've developed more as a brand, we now have more capabilities and more manufacturers that we work with who are able to do so many different things and like in addition to just gold chains. And I do feel like I do feel like everything is pretty saturated. Like every single industry is quite saturated with Shopify and just the ability to be able to, you know, launch a brand pretty easily. But I do think when I think of our competitors, like no one even comes to mind because I think of how we market our products is very unique. Um, We definitely have a lot of competitors who maybe have like similar looking styles to what we do. You know, like it's, it's hard to have anything that crazy unique in the market. I think we do, but I do think we have competitors. Um, But I think how we go about like marketing everything is, is a bit more unique, but there's definitely been a lot of competition. And I think our, brand has evolved a lot in terms of our price point has gotten much higher because we've keep advancing more and more the quality of our products and also just the detail and what our products are like we've noticed that our customer is not afraid of our higher price point pieces like she wants those pieces that are like show-stopping pieces that are you know very emotional, recognizable, like statement pieces. If anytime we launch something that's like safe and dainty, it doesn't work. Like we, our customer is not afraid to spend more money on something that looks like it's more expensive because it is more expensive. How did you communicate those? If you did it all the, the price increases it, it's good that the, that sounds like the customer didn't, you know, balk at that, that they, they, they went along with it. But did you have like messaging around that? Did you tell people we're raising our prices for this reason because the quality is better? Or or did you kind of just do it and just people went with it? It was honestly very gradual. Like just each each collection has like, we would have maybe like one piece in the collection that was a little bit higher because it's like a huge strand of you know, Baroque pearls. So it was, it's an an expensive piece and it would do well. So then in the next collection, we made even more pieces that were a little bit higher price point, a little more complicated. And it just each, it was very gradual. We honestly never really communicated that to our customer. And I do, we have this conversation a lot about when you're selling luxury products, I think there's a good, like you kind of have to teeter on the line between like, needing to convince someone like why your product is luxury versus like it just being what it is. And it is a luxury product. And I think a lot of our customers are very knowledgeable. So they see what it's made out of and they see like what it is and they're like, oh, okay, I understand why this is priced the way it is. So I think we honestly don't really over communicate like trying to convince someone like why our stuff is luxury. I think we try to do do that more in like our campaign imagery and our, like how we present the brand. Right. And just let the product speak for itself. I always think about that, how 
you know, I feel like a more affordable brand will send a super apologetic email if they have to raise prices by $5, but then Chanel will just raise prices by $1,000 and like not even say anything about it. Um, you know, it's your, your product speaks for itself and you know, that, that's a, that's a strategy as well. Um, so, okay. So you, you start the brand, you have your, you have your product, you have your brand positioning. What's the marketing strategy early on? Like, how do you grow the brand and how do you get recognition out there and awareness? And I'm sure your, your own following came into that. Um, but what was the, what were the growth plans at the beginning? So I definitely think what worked for us in the beginning has changed. I think that's pretty natural. Like I think when it comes to social media and the industry in general, it's always evolving and you always have to like think about what's next. In the beginning for us, celebrity was like a big indicator. I think because we were a new brand, it really helped with like credibility to see us on Hailey Bieber and Kylie Jenner and all these bigger names. And now I think what really helps us is honestly just having like amazing recognizable products like we have like our top five styles that I think make up such a big portion of our business and customers wear them and then their friends buy them and it's just kind of like this ripple effect and we focused a lot less on celebrities you know giving us that credibility and more so our like customers giving us that credibility of being like wow I bought this and I absolutely love it And obviously we do use a lot of my personal brands to kind of like feed into Orium. And I think it's just a good way to kind of connect, have a human connection with the brand because our customer is like someone who is similar to me, you know, maybe she's a similar age, similar lifestyle. And I'll be like, here's what I'm wearing. Here's the earrings I'm wearing for date night, or here's the earrings I'm wearing as a guest of a wedding. And I think that's like just super relatable to be able to see how I'm styling things in my day-to-day life and activities. And I think that makes it easy for our customer to picture what she can wear the pieces for too. I mean, I imagine, you know, you have fewer followers than like Hailey Bieber, but your audience is probably more you know, directly engaged with you than her audience, just by by the numbers. Cause you know, if you've got 10 million followers, they can't all be, you know, super engaged. Somebody was telling me recently that they work with, uh, like mega influencers for reach and micro influencers for engagement. Um, I don't, obviously you're not a micro influencer, but I think, you know, you've got a, a much more engaged audience than maybe some huge celebrity that's got you know, several million followers, but it's just, you know, everybody follows them just because they're super famous. Um, so do you, do you feel like you get a lot of, do you get more engagement from that kind of like smaller, but very loyal audience, uh, compared to, you know, people who might pass by the brand just because they're following Dua Lipa or whoever, um, do those people who come to the brand through the celebrities, are they less kind of sticky to the brand than people who come through you or through other channels? It's hard to know and track I like to think Mm -hmm. that like you obviously need to funnel in people from any direction and then it's your job to kind of like get them to stick. Um, There's definitely a lot of people who follow Orium and love Orium and have no idea who I am. And I think they just think maybe I'm like the model that we use all the time Um, (laughs) and or they just don't make the connection or maybe they're not really interested in following an influencer. So which is great. I think that it's fine to have both. I think it's healthy to have both like happening within the brand. I think it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly where everyone is coming from, but I do think 
just in as like advice for a founder in general, even if you're not trying to have like your own huge massive, massive personal brand presence, I think like having a little bit of connection as a founder on with your brand is important because I do think people nowadays really want to know like who is behind the brand that they're purchasing from. Yeah, definitely. And, and I wanted to ask a little bit more about that. Just what's your level of wanting to put yourself into the brand? Like you said, they're, you, they're related. You're, you, you are the founder and you're the creative director and you, you have a very personal, you know, investment in the brand, but it is also a slightly separate thing. It's two separate accounts on Instagram. Um, do you have any limits to what you want to do personally? Like, is there any things where you want to let the brand speak for itself and not put your face or yourself into it? Um, or do you feel like there it's kind of just, you know, case by case, whatever, whatever feels right. I think that we're definitely still in a phase where we like heavily use me as the face of the brand. I think as we continue to become like more luxury and kind of like as the brand continues to evolve, I definitely think I'll be less and less involved. But I do think for now as like a bootstrapped company, it's, it is the best way to kind of funnel in customers for free. So I think until I think for now that is our best strategy for reaching new eyes and connecting with people. And I think, I feel like until we kind of, maybe if we ever like raise down the line or, you know, started to build out our team even further where we can have like people working on multiple different things. But for now, I think it's important to kind of like have people have my tone of voice be a part of things. And a big part of me is also just like, I do think there's some sort of factor of uniqueness to shop from us when, you know, you're on the website and it's like me and how I'm styling things. And it's still portrayed in a very elevated way. It's not like it looks like amateur, I I think. Yeah. Um, but, and it's not just like a random, you know, supermodel who was modeling the clothes that day. Like, I think... I think there's like a deeper connection, but I do recognize that, you know, eventually we will pivot and hopefully Orin will continue to get bigger than me. Yeah. I mean, and when the brand gets to a certain size, like you, you, you probably just from a logistical perspective, won't be able to like model everything or you will have to kind of spread beyond that eventually. I also wonder, is there any, did you guys make any effort to, like you're saying, uh, it's not an amateur thing. This is a legit brand. It's not like it's not like you're an Etsy shop and you're making stuff in your living room or something. It's a it's a legit brand. So, um, did you did you ever have any or put any intentional effort into making that distinction that like yes, you're involved and and this is like based on your taste and your the 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 mind behind it, but also like it's not a one person show. There's like this is a legit company with you know really skilled people making this product and stuff. Um, I don't know. Did it, what was the thinking around how to kind of position the brand there? I think that like, obviously as we, as our products have gotten, the price point has gotten a little bit higher as we evolve as founders and just get better at what we do. I think it just like kind of naturally keeps evolving to like look better and better. I think, and I do think, you know, we look back on what we did last year and it makes me cringe a little bit. I'm like, ah, it looks so amateur. And I think, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's like, you should just keep moving forward and keep trying to like do things 
the best way possible. I do think most people don't understand that it's literally three of us on a team running literally everything. So, and we've kind of chosen to do things that way because I think when you have limited funds, you can either, you know, make the decision to keep working on your brand and maybe, you know, maybe my husband and I have to work way more hours, but then that money of someone's salary, we get to use for other things to grow the brand. So we have made those strategic decisions to work extremely hard and work all the time and be able to invest the money that we're making in different areas of growing the business than only just on talent. And speaking of that, I wanted to ask, so Arium is is DTC only, correct? So we actually are no, like as of literally this month, we did a trunk okay. show with Moda. Um, okay, cool. We launched on Revolve and we are launching on Anthropology. And we're also in a talks with a few other wholesalers as well. Okay, so you've got quite a bit of wholesale expansion happening already and, and more coming. I wanted to ask about that. And what was what was that launch like and, and the decision to... Because so, so you were DTC for a couple of years and just recently started to expand wholesale. Right? So we actually were on Revolve when we, in like the first two months that we okay. launched and it went really well, but this was COVID times. Um, so our brand was expanding and we just didn't have the inventory to fulfill like the reorder for Revolve. We wanted to be able to fill the orders like for our DTC business. And looking back on that, I do. I'm very happy that we decided to have a long stretch of time where we were just DTC because I feel like it helped me really understand who our customer is and like figure things out ourselves directly with our customer and be able to communicate and build a community and get real feedback on products just with our own community. Because I think both channels are important to have, but I do think it's hard to understand like who you are and what your brand is when you're just basing it off of like whatever wholesaler you're selling to. There's a lot of trade-offs I think for both channels. Like like you said, they're both really important, but they, they also, I think both have downsides. Like you said, uh, you know, especially at the beginning of a brand where you're still trying to figure out who you are. I've heard from some brands where they start with some big department store and the department store kind of shapes the brand a little bit because they're like, we, we just want this one product, make us more of that. And because if you're a newer brand and they're this big department store, you kind of feel like you got to do what they say. And it, I feel like there can be a whole thing there. But then on the flip side, it is also, you know, getting your your stuff on the shelf at Nordstrom is a great way to introduce a bunch of new people to the brand. So like there's, there's lots of trade-offs there. Um, do you have any ideal split of the business between DTC and wholesale that you'd like to do? Like, 50-50 or 70-30 or something like that? I think that we would probably want to keep it around 70-30, I think would be great for us. I think... Um, like 70 DTC, 30 yeah, wholesale? Yeah, I think... I feel like wholesale is obviously much, much tighter margins. Um, so it's mainly used almost as like a marketing channel to get your brands out there to more people. I think for now, I I also feel like a lot of the fun of what we do is like our campaigns and our imagery. I think we always would want to like be kind of strategic about like which products we're giving to which retailers and which things we're keeping for ourselves and kind of like 
eventually get to a place where like we're kind of strategically launching things across the different channels. What about for your own brand, for the for the direct business, um, any interest in maybe down the line a physical store, like an actual REM collective brick and mortar place? Yes, that's honestly probably like our number one goal. Um, I think a lot of our customers are in New York. And I think what separates our brand apart is just how great it looks in person. And as we expand categories, I think it's going to be really important for people to be able to physically try those on in person and see them in person. So that's like our number one thing on our radar. We're like dying to open a store. Um, We have done pop-ups in the past and they have done really well. And we'll probably do some pop-ups this year. And we're like hoping maybe next year we're manifesting being able to open a store. Do those pop-ups help you kind of feel out um, certain regions or certain store formats, things like that? Are you using that as a little bit of a test phase? I feel like the number one thing that I get out of the pop-ups is one-on-one chatting with our customers. Like it really helps me in the design process, in the marketing process. I can just like picture the crowd of the customers that showed up for our pop-up and like, that's our girl and that's our customer. So it's like great to have that feedback. Um, And I also just think it's obviously a great sales channel. I think we've kind of stepped away from doing influencer heavy events and things like that. I think it's all about the customer and like creating cool experiences for them. So I think, having those pop-ups is a great way to be able to like meet Matt and I, like see the brand in person. We also have had customers kind of like be in line next to each other and they'll like meet a like-minded girl that they're standing with in line. And like now they become friends. Like I think we would love to take it to a place where it's eventually something that is almost also even like a meet and greet type thing amongst our community. Because I think like it's your, it's bound to be a lot of like-minded people in the room who have a similar interest. So I think it could be like a cool way for girls. If you just move to New York city to like meet, meet a new friend or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Okay. A couple more questions. Um, so you guys launched just before the pandemic. You mentioned earlier that uh, those first few months I imagine were probably very scary. Um, and then now, you know, that, that the, some of those crises from 2020 have kind of died down, but now a big thing is there's inflation and people always say the macroeconomic situation or whatever. Have you guys felt any impact either on you uh, through your manufacturing or getting your supplies or whatever, um, or to your customer in terms of they're spending less or they're feeling more pressured from, you know, any of that economic stuff? I think for us, the number one thing has been the cost of gold has gone up. So our cost of goods has gone up and that can be tricky. Like our, we don't necessarily need to like tell the customer every single time the cost of gold goes up. It's something you can literally Google. So for us, that's been hard because we don't have any control of that. And it's like, there's nothing we can really do about our prices going up. I think that's kind of one of the, cons of working in the jewelry world is when like the cost of metal starts to go up, it's going to have an effect on the customer and where we're able to price things. What about um, shipping and and getting stuff 
you know, when you're expecting to get it. I know that's been a big headache for a lot of brands for a while is just really long delays or really high freight costs for getting the goods and getting the materials where you need them. Um, has that led up at all? Is that getting any easier or cheaper or quicker? We honestly haven't had many problems in that department, but we have had problems with trying to launch new categories, working with the new manufacturers in Italy has been like wildly time consuming and just the timeline for creating things like that. But other than that, we haven't had issues on like their shipping side of things. Yeah, maybe last two things I want to ask you. So those those are challenges we just talked about, um, the price of gold. Is there anything else that comes to mind as like a really big challenge or obstacle or problem that you are working on solving for, for the brand right now? Like we're, we're, what's taking up the most of your mental effort right now to, to figure out? I think the number one thing, which basically I feel like every founder of every category is always worrying about is like how to acquire a new customer as cheaply as possible. So I think obviously there's been so many changes to Facebook and advertising recently. So it hasn't been as easy to just crank Facebook ads and get a massive return. So it's just figuring out how to organically reach people on social media, maybe reaching people through TikTok or reaching people in whatever way we can on social media, exploring wholesale. Um, I think that's kind of been our number one thing that we've been learning. And the other thing we're obviously trying to focus on, once you do require a customer, now we need to figure out like all the things we can do to hopefully keep that customer and expands like our customer loyalty because we do have a lot of customers who purchase from us every single time we launch a collection and it's kind of like how do you can get your other customers to act in that way and how do you get them to want to like repeat purchases and once you do require a customer how do you keep them and how do you keep satisfying their needs so that's how we decided to expand into new categories is on the way it's been taking a very very long time, but I think that's another great way is to serve your existing customer additional things that maybe they wouldn't have expected from you. Have you guys tweaked your your performance marketing, like Facebook ads or TikTok ads or anything recently? Like, are you pulling back on that because it's more expensive and or more difficult, or are you leaning into it more? I definitely think it's not as like robust as it once was, like in 2019. But we still do it and we do still see a great return on it. I think we really tried to test out different like imagery and videos and copy. And we just try to test and change and constantly come up with new ideas as often as we can. Because we do everything in-house, it's quite easy to very quickly adapt um, like what the creative is for that. And then last thing I want to ask you. So want to end on a positive note. Is there anything that's happening either with your brand or kind of just in the market that has been a positive development or is promising or anything getting a little easier? Um, you know, there's lots of stuff that's always hard and always tough about running a business. But yeah, has anything gotten easier for you recently or any promising developments? I do still think that social media is just like such a powerful tool for your brand. If you can crack the code and figure it out, um, It is a free way to find new customers and to market to your existing customers. And I feel like for us, it's been 
that has been going really well. We've been like growing on social media again. Like there was a, a period of time that we really weren't growing. Um, and our engagement has been higher again. And it's just from trying out a million different things. Like just, I think a lot of people are like, oh, it's the algorithm. Oh, I can't figure it out. Like, I just think you have to just be positive and kind of try different things and use social media as a tool. Cause I just think it's the greatest tool there is to market for your brands. And if you can't figure it out, hire someone to help you figure it out um, and really use it to the best of your ability to, you know, expand your brand. Yeah. I mean, people always say that you don't know what's going to go viral on TikTok and sometimes stuff just explodes. But one way to increase your odds is just post stuff regularly. Like if you have more things, then it's more likely that one of those things will, the algorithm will pick it up. Um, I know I said last question, but real quick, are you guys messing with TikTok? Do you have an account either for yourself or for Arium? So we do. We've had a lot of struggles with our own like um, Orium's branded TikTok. It's so hard, I think, as a brand to get views as on TikTok. Obviously, we're doing our typical strategy of like my personal brand's TikTok and I'll like casually talk about the earrings I'm wearing or talk about something with Orium and then kind of like feed that into Orium's TikTok. But it's been hard. I think like a brand on TikTok is very challenging. I think you need like a face to the brand. So we kind of use my personal brand to like feed into the brand's TikTok. Cool. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Uh, Cass, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. Thanks for walking us through. Thank you. Um, your strategies and, and all the cool stuff you're doing at Arium Collective. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you like the Glossy Podcast, subscribe, give us a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this, and tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.